Today we're going to jump back into our, our teaching, our Standing Firm series. And I want you to know that in your seats you're going to find some connection cards. So if you're visiting with us here for the first time, or you've been with us here for some time, that card is a great way for you to communicate with us throughout the remainder of the time we have together. If you have uh, questions about life or faith, if you need to be prayed for or supported, if you have questions about this church, really, if there is a way that we can serve you, that card is a great way for you to let us know throughout this time. There's certainly other ways to do that here at our church. But during this time, that card is a great way for you to let us know that. So keep that in mind as we move forward. You can place those cards, and as I'll mention at the end of our time this morning, our gifts and offerings in these towers as we exit after our benediction. So make sure you follow Jesus where he takes you this morning, and let us serve you in whatever way we can if he encourages you or challenges you to take a next step. So right before I left, you, you might remember that we were in a series called Standing Firm, which is a series that revolves around a text in Ephesians, a little, a little past what I just mentioned in a colloquial way a moment ago from Ephesians 4. Ephesians 6, there's, there's an interesting set of teachings that Paul gives us about the armor of God. And we began this series at the beginning of the summer, studying these verses where Paul uses this military metaphor about putting on the armor of God to describe how we can be empowered to follow Jesus faithfully for all the days of our lives. And he uses some very steep military language here, very indicative of like a captain on the battlefield commanding troops to put on their armor and prepare for, for a great charge. And in this case, the great charge we are given is how we live for Jesus, how we sort of flourish on this earth throughout its you know, successes and the challenges that we deal with throughout life. In all of these areas, we are given this incredible teaching to be able to know how to flourish in, in Jesus. And so as we continue on in this series, I, I'm going to take just a minute or two to, to bring us up to where we were before I left so that you don't feel maybe lost if this is your first time visiting or, you know, where there were some other things we were talking about in my absence. I want to sort of press a reset button here and get us up to speed. To date, we have talked about a few things. And the, the most significant thing I want to point out before we even get into the particulars is that these individual pieces of armor that we have examined, Every single one of them is given to us. It's a gift from God, and there is a responsibility we have with these gifts. In other words, we can't just, today we're going to begin talking about the shield of faith. We can't just recognize that God gives us the gift of faith. He provides us this amazing opportunity through Jesus to, to know him and to grow in his grace. We, we cannot just hear about faith without receiving it and actually pressing into what a life built on faith looks like. So to, in, in a true sense, every one of these things we have talked about, the reality of how deeply they have affected our mind and our heart and our hands is going to be evidenced in the way that we apply them or seek to apply them. Every area of, of this armor gives us some significant truth that, when applied, gives us the ability to stand firm in the ways of Jesus no matter what we face. And so we've already talked about the, the buckle of truth, which, simply put, the belt buckle of truth is sort of... It's this idea that there's an objective truth in our world. God has a, a way, uh, a, a design for our lives that he wants us to live in. And when we abide by his truth and rely on him for that strength to live in his truth, life becomes good. Then we looked at the breastplate of righteousness, how it was given to us to stand firm against the problem of sin. We firmly established that in order for us to really appreciate the grace of Jesus... We have to know what the Bible means by sin. We have to be able to deconstruct unhealthy cultural assumptions, pop culture images, movies, film, music. We have to really know, biblically speaking, what sin is before we can truly appreciate what the grace of Jesus is and how he dealt with that sin on the cross for us. We spent some time talking about 
what we mean by the enemy in the Bible. You know, we also try to to disconnect some of the the more trite and, and entertainment-oriented understandings that we have of the enemy or the devil in our world by looking at some strong biblical teachings about who he is. And so after the buckle of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, we spent two weeks talking about the gospel shoes of peace. And we learned that when we wear shoes seem pretty insignificant, but they, they are very important to not only our lives, but to the lives of a soldier in the first century world. They, are, they give us the ability to react, to respond, to move around. They, they make us agile in life, shoes. They allow us to do things and go places that we could not do without shoes. And so when we wear the gospel shoes of peace, we're given this ability to endure and flourish in any circumstance that life throws our way. And then right before we left, I actually took that idea of, of the gospel shoes of peace, and we talked about how significant it is for us to know that the gospel shoes of peace are not just meant to be worn in secret, they're actually meant to be worn in a way where we learn to share that gospel in our world, wherever God provides us those opportunities. We talked about the blessed rhythm, which is in your seats at this very moment. So if you were not here for that week, or you uh, were here but maybe missed taking a card in your connection packets and your cup holders, you'll find a blessed card, which gives you the opportunity to notate the ways that God is working in your life or in the lives of people. You can actually notate that on that card so you can have a consistent tool to refer to and how to pray to God, beginning with prayer, listening, eating with others, serving, and sharing them. That's the acronym BLESS, in your seats. Now, all of what I just said is online. I obviously wish I could go through this in more detail, but I want to have you out of here to eat lunch, and I'd like to do the same thing. So we'll take that summary, and I just want you to know if you missed any of that or you'd like to refresh that, all of that is online. Okay? Today, we're going to transition at this halfway point and begin looking at the shield of faith. Faith is interesting. It's a major topic in the Bible. It's one that has great implication in our lives, and it is a truth that it's truly central to everything we've talked about. If you think about it, to believe that God is a God of truth and veracity, to believe the, the truths about what Jesus did for us on the cross, if you believe these ideas about the, the gospel shoes of peace, all of these truths require us to have an element of faith. We have to understand what faith is in order to be able to to trust in the God who says the things we have been talking about are actually true. And so faith without doubt, it is a significant theological topic in both Testaments, Old and New, and it is one of the, the truths in the Scripture that has a massive implication in our lives. It's a foundational truth that affects a lot of other things. It is also a truth that I have taught on in this room several times over the years and in other rooms in this state and in others. And so I really thought about how to handle faith because it is central to the text we're talking about and significant to everything that we said and where we're going. And what I decided to do was I took everything I'd ever taught on about faith over the years and I just began to curate certain critical ideas, thoughts, and ideas that I felt were, were central to us so that we could understand faith in our own lives. In other words, so that we as believers could have a, a more robust understanding of what faith is and isn't. But also so that we can be the type of people that can, that can respond to objections against it. Because you have to understand, in our world, if you have watched any type of television or talked to people, see, there are certainly people who have faith in our world, but there are other groups of people who will look at, for example, our faith in Christ, no pun intended, and they will say the idea of faith is ridiculous. Uh, it's ridiculous to believe in a guy that said he raised himself from the dead 2,000 years ago, and we can't like scientifically test that. Maybe we can rely on some historical disciplines to, to analyze that. But, but you know, we can't put Jesus in a beaker and figure out whether or not he's a real thing. 
there is a major thrust in our world that has a problem with faith. And so one of the things I love about our church is that I don't ever just want to assume that everybody walking into this room and everybody in your life as you walk out of this room just has the same carbon copy idea of what faith is. There's likely questions about it in this room, confusion, and maybe even opposition against it when you leave this room. And so we're going to look at a curation of teachings today, beginning with this idea of whether or not we can even trust faith as a thing. Like, is this even something we should devote our lives to? Because think about it. To a certain degree, we have some people that say faith is one of the most foolish things I've ever seen in life. And then there's these groups of people in Christianity who devote their whole life to it. This is like an oxymoron of the highest sorts to those folks. So my teaching today is aimed at, at giving us a general understanding of what faith is while addressing what is probably the most common misconception about the nature of faith for those who deny it altogether. And I want to begin this week by examining the misconception. We'll look at other t- topics in the weeks that come. But today we'll begin with, with in a more pointed way what, what, what I just said a moment ago. In Christianity, faith, you've probably heard me say this before, is not a blind leap of ignorance. This is how faith is often viewed in our world. It's viewed as an irrational step in a direction towards something you can't see or touch. So in Christianity, I want to really hammer on this. Faith is not a blind leap of ignorance. It is rather taking a step just beyond what you can see. That's the starting ground I'd like to begin with here. And in Ephesians 6.16, Paul says this about faith in this whole series on the armor of God. In addition to all this, all the things we just highlighted, he says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. There's only a handful of words there, but there's a lot of things going on. And that's why I want to take some time over the weeks to look at it. We're going to have to connect what he means by the enemy, the evil one, who he's already referenced. How he's saying now one of the roles faith has in our lives is it, it can extinguish the flaming arrows of the one who seeks to undermine and deceive us in all areas of life. It's a central tenet to the Christian faith. But it is a tenant you're going to run into some opposition with in the world. And if you've ever been through a faith crisis in your own life, you likely have run into this opposition in your own heart. And so today, it's become common in a lot of circles to assert that if you embrace faith, it means you, you don't think anymore. You stopped using your mind or you're trusting in something that is just foolish. And so in extreme cases, we'll start here. Faith and thought, they are believed at times to be absolutely at odds with each other. This is predominantly the battle cry of the hardened atheist movements in North America, at least for the past 20, 25 years we've seen this. And if you are interested in, in sort of running down this road a little bit, there's a guy named Sarah Harrison who's actually a really intelligent guy. This is the tenet of what he believes. He's, a very, he, he's almost a messianic figure in the atheist movements. Folks like Sam Harrison have made this view popular. They assert in numbers of ways, you can watch this guy on TED Talks and read his books, that, that in this worldview of faith, people are accused of, of sort of farming out life responsibility, farming out their faculties, and, and trusting in a God who essentially replaces all of those things for you. You abandon the most important thing in your life, your mind, for a God who does all of these things for you. So if you want me to put this in a really sort of slang type of way, it would be something like this. When you follow God, you follow a God who thinks for you, you follow a God who tells you what faith is, and then if that is not enough of a problem, he defines what faith is by giving you a book called the Bible filled with rules and regulations. It's sort of like, here's your life, it's on autopilot now. Check out of who you've been made to be and figure out who this God tells you to be. Now in this camp, faith is viewed as like the hijacking of, my, of, of the mind. 
when I was in seminary at New Orleans, one of the things that I loved most about my seminary was the the confluence of thought that came in. And you could be in classes that were incredibly academic and then classes that were just ridiculously practical. And I thought that was a, a really good balance to train men and women who are moving out of that academic institution into the field of the local church. And so one of the things they did and still do annually is they have this thing called the Gurney Lectures where they address major cultural issues and they bring in these, these speakers who literally have a debate in front of a, a packed chapel full of students. And so one year, many years ago, they had a conversation about atheism because there was a very strong movement about 15 years ago that said faith is a done deal, like the world is moving towards atheism. Now, we see that uh, that's actually not true. Faith is flourishing, not just the Christian faith, I want to be clear. Faith and religion in many ways is flourishing around the world. But there was this idea, which is not a new one, that at some point the enlightened mind of the human would replace the need for any type of faith. And so they brought in these heavy hitters to discuss this stuff. The, the lecture I heard was from Alison McGrath and Daniel Dennett. Uh, Daniel Dennett is also one of the most famous atheists in the world. He's right up there with the deceased uh, Christopher Hitchens. And if you've ever heard me talk about atheism in this room, there's a quorum of atheists whom I refer to as people whom I really respect. I don't agree with them, but I respect them because they're only a handful of people that really consistently prescribe to this position. And Daniel Dennett is also one of those guys. He's like a salty, big bearded dude uh, who talks a lot about atheism and how faith is just a problem. And in this lecture, he actually, it was a brilliant way to frame it. He started with these blown up images of things you couldn't even rec recognize. They were like pixelated images behind him in the big screen. And as he was talking, the, the picture got clearer and clearer and clearer. And eventually what you saw was something that looked like a, wasn't exactly a parasite, but it was some, uh, some disease-causing protein that creates what we know as mad cow disease in the world today. Any of you familiar with mad cow disease? It's a disease that literally, one of you was like, yep, I had it once in a while. It's a disease that literally, it, in, it's, it infects the mind of a cow to the point where it degenerates the mind. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a, neuro, a neurological issue. It erodes the mind to the point where it kills the, kills the cow. In other words, it strikes at the heart of the brain stops it from thinking rationally and functioning as it should, and eventually robs the cow of its life. And what he said is, this is what faith is. It's a small parasite that begins in the mind of a human, and eventually what it does when you practice it for 40 or 50 years is it literally destroys the mind and the life of the infected part. And so what we would refer to in the scripture as, like Hebrews, the faithful, right? Those men and women who we look to as examples, not perfect, albeit, but examples of the faith that have, that have really followed Jesus well for their days, we say, these are the men and women we pray, God, make us like them. He says, that's the greatest example of mad cow disease with the religion I've ever seen. Wow, right? In, in my experience, this belief, depending on who you're talking to, it can definitely be hardened like this. Sometimes folks are a little softer with it. But true atheism purports this idea that there is something deeply wrong about having faith. It actually is something that is undermining the progress of humanity. Now, in my experience, this belief, it seems to be held by people who have a very minimal, not always, but a lot of times, a very minimal, or they've had extremely unhealthy contact with people of faith. I mean, we can all look to the news and find you know, stories of crazy people around the country. You seldom see rational, thoughtful people of the faith put on television. But nonetheless, those examples are what people see. And while this might sound like a solid, sophisticated rebuttal against people of faith, it is not the only viewpoint out there. It's worth knowing these viewpoints are out there, but it's also worth knowing that not everybody prescribes to this idea. 
In fact, there are some people who use their mind quite regularly, but they've derived a different conclusion about the nature and the role of faith. And I want to give you a contrarian example here. It is quite obvious that over the past, really, 10 years, I would say, the biological discipline of genetics, which was once restricted to the upper levels of science labs, has now had a massive street-level effect on our world. Now, maybe the, the understanding of the genome and upper-level science, maybe you are or are not familiar with that. I want to show you how this practically is shaping the world we live in. Maybe you've not ever read a book on genetics, but you've likely noticed that there are several companies in our world today. You ever heard of a company called Ancestry.com? Heard of a company called 23andMe? Okay, these are companies that want you to send in, usually a saliva sample, so they can analyze your DNA and tell the genetic history of your life. They can identify medical issues with you. They can tell you, hey, you thought you were Irish your whole life, but it turns out you know, you're know, you Swedish or whatever it is. Those are the stories we see on TV of people who, they come into this whole new epiphany about their life. And for $75 and a little bit of spit, you can send this thing off to a, a lab in Wisconsin and they'll send you back the biological history of your body. Genetics has become a cultural phenomenon right now. It started in a science lab, but it has truly now become the kind of thing where they even offer this for dogs now. It's crazy. You can have like an Ancestry.com you know, thing for your dog, which is cool, I guess, if you're into that. But it's just another waste of $85 as far as I'm concerned. Right? But it's out there if you want to do it. And so this, I, years ago, I, I've always been interested in this subject, but uh, a couple of months ago, I got really interested in it because I just felt like everywhere I was going, I was inundated with this or hit with this idea. And so I just started looking into, I was watching TED Talks and YouTube videos, I picked up a couple of books and articles, was tooling through stuff. I began to look into the history of the genome, like what started 30 years ago that made this so popular in our world. And as I did, I came across a well-known scientist named Francis Collins. This is a name I've heard of before, uh, in fact, many years ago, but I didn't realize to the degree that I'm going to share a little bit about his story now, what his life was made up of. And so Collins is the current director of the United States National Institutes for Health, the NIH, as it's known on the government website. This is the agency, he leads the agency that, that develops a lot of the medical research which helps to enrich and elongate the lives of Americans. This is cutting edge science. And Collins also led, it's no longer in existence, but because they finished the job, he led the Human Genome Project, which was a global task force that mapped and discovered most of the genetic information we now rely on to make life Better. That's a long-winded way of saying he was the guy that led the project that mapped the genome. All the stuff where we're doing on the, online today with 23andMe, it began in these labs about 30 years ago. My point in all of this is this guy Collins is a brilliant guy. Now, that part was obvious to me. But what I found more interesting is he's also a professing Christian who, I need to add this, affirms the scriptures. Okay? There are a lot of professing Christians who have no place for the Bible in their life today. But this is a guy at the upper echelon of the sciences who believes, has faith in Jesus, and affirms the Bible. And that part really piqued my interest. And so I listened to his testimony. I actually started running through the, the history of his faith. And he had an interesting testimony. I, I will share it briefly. He admitted he grew up like on a, in a farm-type culture in the Midwest. He grew up as somewhat agnostic, not opposed to faith. But that faith and religion of any sort was not a precedent in his household. And then when he got into the upper levels of academics, he migrated into atheism, like true atheism. But interestingly enough, he said, as he got more and more sort of focused on genome studies, it caused him to really begin questioning the foundation of his atheism. So what happens here is 
he, as he is getting more involved and accomplished in the scientific world, begins to wonder whether or not atheism can actually be a rational argument. And in short, what happens is, during his studies, he concluded that the world and life as we know it is too complex and too perfect, too finely orchestrated, to just have been accidental, okay? Over time, what he says is the beauty of life, of studying life, compelled him to, to an alternative understanding of it, which he now understands as faith, at least from the origin perspective, right? That there is something not accidental behind who we are, and his name is God, our creator. And so, so much so that he now believes atheism is the least logical position a person can hold when it comes to the discussion of life and faith. And this is very true about a lot of atheism. Uh, it is, sometimes it's very inconsistent. That's why I usually respect real, like true atheists, but the bottom line here is, is he now refers to our DNA, which is driving much of our science today, as the language of God. It's one of the ways he's spoken to the world and the way that he created it. It's an amazing story. And I need you to know, I don't necessarily agree with every position he holds to. That is hard for me and probably any of us in this room to do with any other person, since we're usually not carbon copy replicas of each other. The more that I looked into his life, the more I was convinced that we actually need to have a gracious, articulate, thought-out response to people who believe that because we follow Jesus, we are no longer thoughtful, rational people. I mean, Paul is writing from this, about this. The assumption here is faith is very real, and it plays a significant role in our life. I also would like to point out, Paul was also an incredibly brilliant human being. You don't have to read but a couple of his paragraphs in the New Testament to see that this guy would have been a featured speaker in any campus in our world today because of his, his, his mental and spiritual prowess. He's a, he's a stalwart of all the disciplines we respect today. This guy speaks to us as faith, of faith, as something that matters. And throughout history, you'll see there have been lots of brilliant, productive, grounded people who have made a space, a great space, for faith in their life. And I've only shared one, maybe a handful of examples of this with you today. In fact, I regularly make the case in this room that having genuine faith, especially when we begin to specify the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, it often requires us to think about things that people who do not necessarily have faith, they're given the luxury to sort of ignore some of those things. Genuine faith, in particular in Christ, it demands you think about things that would likely not be priorities on your mind or heart if you were not actually forced to deal with them because of your desire to know and grow in the goodness of Jesus. In other words, genuine faith in Christianity is what it's going to produce is a time where Jesus brings to our attention things that we would not want brought to our attention otherwise. Well, how you might ask, give me some examples of this. Let me give you a few. The idea I want to talk about here is that one of the marks of true faith, I mean genuine faith, a faith rooted in the Bible, uh, uh, an honest, God-honoring faith that's trying to, to, to serve Jesus well. One of the marks of that type of faith in Jesus is that God expects you and I to think about things we had the luxury to ignore at one point in our lives. Here's some obvious ones. We're called now to think about areas of our personal morality in light of God's ways, things we might have stayed straight away from. We're called to think about what it means to represent righteousness and justice in a world where we often see injustice. What does it mean for the believer to, to actually be the righteousness of God in the world? We're assigned the task of loving our neighbors, and at times even our enemies, often at times at the expense of our own well-being. Ask this, we can't ask them on this earth, but this is the story of the martyr. Those who have literally given their life to help people understand who Jesus is around the world. There was nothing advantageous about that. And in some, sometimes they went to places where it was incredibly hostile for them to be. But they did it. Ludicrous from one side of the fence, faithful from our side of the fence. 
We're challenged to think about what we do with our time, right? Think about this. These are the great idols of American culture. I mention them a lot. What we do with our time and how we use our money. These are the off-limits, don't touch these areas, the don't tread on me areas of the life of the American. But in the scripture, they are talked about relentlessly because they are great evidences of how we understand the role of our lives in the world. We are to be generous with who we are. I mean, we are not even our own. That's what scripture, scripture tells us. So everything we are, every asset we have, to some degree, is God's asset. And it's meant to be used for his goodness and his grace in the world. We're challenged to think about those things. You can't be, you know, selfish. I mean, you can be selfish in the Christian faith. But you're not supposed to be because Jesus regularly raises this reality. It indicates deep and meaningful things about our hearts. We're asked to think about our lives not as our own, but as reflections of Christ in heaven, of the goodness and the grace of Jesus in the world. And so true faith in Christ, a serious faith, a faith that is exemplary, a faith that is striving to grow in the grace of Jesus, is truly a never-ending exercise in not abandoning the faculties God has given you, but I would say using them in very pointed and straight up, at times in very uncomfortable ways. We are called to wrestle with the truth claims of Jesus throughout Scripture, and we're told to figure out how to live in light of them with every moment of our lives. Now, that's a very idealistic statement. I understand that. We're also, you know, we serve a God who, who patiently works these things out in our lives every day of our existence, so it isn't that we read a verse and then we are automatically, you know, supposed to be this. That's not the point of what it means to, to know and grow in the grace of Jesus. The idea is that when the Lord raises something in our lives, we should be looking at this thing and trying to figure out what it means for this thing, whatever that thing is, to be present in our lives. True faith in Christ is a never-ending exercise in healthy faith. And so far and few between, I'm not saying they're not out there, but I am saying at least in our tradition, far and few between are the stories of people who have faith like what we're talking about today that just blindly stumbled into Christianity because they wanted to be a thoughtless fool. You don't map the genome and stumble into the stupidity of faith, right? These stories exist too. What typically happens is there's, there's some serious life issue. You have your own genome story, whatever it is. There's some area of life, maybe it's suffering or crisis or hope or financial issues, whatever it is, something often happens that trips in us a desire to seek something greater than what is just in front of us. It requires a step beyond that what we, that we can touch, right? I mean, if you're wrecked by the lack of funds in a banking account, at some point you're going to say, there's got to be something beyond the account that validates my life. In our faith tradition, the more common story is evaluation is encouraged. And people come to faith, not even in easy ways, but they begin to weigh these truth ideas with their mind, and then eventually they believe them with their hearts. And we're going to get to that in the weeks that come. Today I'm addressing in particular the mind. Although some people like to claim that faith is a sort of life cop-out, it is a self-defeating idea, there's better things to talk about when you're going to address the problem of faith than that. And that is simply put because it lacks honesty. It's not a cardinal or a, or a uh, cookie-cutter reality for everybody and how they understand these ideas we're talking about. And the reason for this is, and this is also something I've said here at length about in this room in the past, the truth is, is that the, there is not a person on earth that, that does not have faith in something. Everyone in this world has faith in something. It is just a matter of whether they know it or not. Just about everything you do to a certain degree requires you to have an element of faith. 
And not a blind faith, but a faith just beyond what you can see. Okay? So uh, the literal definition of faith is having a belief or trust in someone or something. Think about this. Most of you, you in this room showed up this morning because there was an assumption. The assumption was when you came to this theater, during this time, you would not be watching the 13th version of Avengers in this room, right? You would come here, and there would be a group of people called the Body of Restoration doing what we do. That's not a step of ignorance. You have, there's a pedigree here. You have learned to know that over the past 10 years, it's hard to believe you've been in this building 10 years, but just shy of 10 years, we have, we have been in this place. And so there's a faith assumption that when you walk in here, this is going to be here. And if you were to come here two or three weeks in a row, and this was not here, it's very likely your faith in that object would wane. A lot of your favorite restaurants. I, I had lunch with uh, Abe this week. We were talking about all kinds of things. We have very long meetings when we get together. You can ask our wives. We talk about all kinds of amazing things. But we went at Chipotle, and we were talking about how we walked into Chipotle because we just assume now over years it says it opens at 11, and when I walk in that place, there's going to be hot chicken there to eat, right? There's a faith assumption there. I promise every person, even the person who ridicules those who have faith, when you begin to examine the way they live in the world, there is some form of faith in something. And so our goal then becomes to try to figure out what the faith is actually in. There are some obvious ones for people. For some, it's easy to identify religious gods. There are people of other faiths. There are folks who uh, sort of put all of their hope in power. That's a pretty prominent theme in our world, past, present, and I'm confident in the future. Uh, most of the stories of abuse in our world are abuses of power. There is the hope of success, which is great when you have it, but when you're without it, that, that faith God starts to unravel. Some people want prestige. Some of us put our faith in our families, and those are a lot of these things are good things. Not all of them, but a lot of them are good things. It's just you can't have an ultimate hope or an ultimate faith in these things because at some point they're going to fail you. And so today, the thing that I find perhaps most interesting, and I would maybe even say comfort, personal comfort and convenience, is perhaps the greatest God. It's the thing people want to put their faith in the most today. And it's kind of an appealing God because he invites us or she invites us to the worship of the altar of personal convenience. And at the expense, for the Christian anyways, of the advancement of the gospel of peace in our world. You know, comfort and convenience, I'm, I'm not against those things. I'm not ever saying, like, I ask God to, you know, to make me more uncomfortable. I do know, though, that when I pray, there's a, there's a reality that at times the more uncomfortable we are, the more sort of shook we are, the more, the more we are thinking and wrestling with things that are not necessarily at the top of our priority list, the more likely we see in history God moving. And so this, this idea of faith, like our assumption, our hope in life is that we're going to just work hard for 40 years and be comfortable or that we'll be comfortable what we're doing now. That's not always the best way. In fact, the story of Jesus shows a way very contrary to that. If Jesus' chief goal in life was comfort, if that's what his faith and hope was in, not the promises and the plan of God, the story of Christianity would be a very different one. We wouldn't have a story of Christianity because there is no cross in the story of comfort. Very commonly today, and perhaps the main matter addressed at what I'm talking about today, is that people who become comfortable, for whatever reason, telling another that their faith is silly or flat out wrong, while simultaneously being confident enough to make that claim because they have placed a blind faith in themselves and their own versions of the truth, this is what is happening a lot. People say, your faith is dumb, I don't have faith, but actually they do have faith in something. And here's how I want to wrap up today. I want to give you an example of somebody who had great faith. They just were not aware of what it was in yet. And this is a story I shared with you two years ago. It's a story I share with you again because this was the first time I actually looked into the eyes of another human and saw this. Like it was so obvious to me that we were having the same conversation about faith. We were just having it from a, from a very different perspective. 
And so this happened in my second year of school while I was in New Orleans. I was having a pretty serious conversation with a good friend of mine from school. We were at a coffee shop and we were talking about the sovereignty of God. That's a pretty weighty uh, subject. There's all kinds of theological and philosophical rabbits you can chase in that world. And so we were just having like a, a midday chat about this in between classes. And while this was happening, uh, something very awkward began to happen. About a third of the way through this conversation, it was becoming very obvious to me that there was a guy sitting at a table next to me who was eavesdropping our conversation. I think he was attempting to be discreet, but the CIA this dude was not in. That was pretty obvious to me. There was nothing discreet about it. He had done everything but like touched my you know shoulder to talk to me at the moment. He was attempting to be discreet, but he was not doing a good job about, at it. And after a while, it actually got a little uncomfortable uh, for, for a number of reasons, but then the situation got, got worse. I was going to like say, hey, uh, it's obvious you're like intruding here and please stop. That's about where I was at that moment. But before I did that, it got worse. The guy actually got up and walked over to our table and he sat down right next to us and he began telling us why he was eavesdropping. He said, uh, listen, man, uh, I overheard your conversation and I just had to like, step over here and begin uh, talking to you about it. And that's when it got very weird. There was this awkward minute where we were just not sure what to do. And the reason for this is, is uh, if you've ever grown up or spent any time in our modern world, or I, I grew up in two urban areas in New York and spent some time uh, in New Orleans, so two thirds of my life or in major metros. And my dad is like arguably the most distrusting person on earth. So he inbred in us growing up that we should distrust anything at all times going on around us. He used to joke about this and call this like a street smart. And so when we would walk streets, we were very aware of what was going on us around us at all times. And I would say that when a person walks up to you and starts acting like this, this is one of those places to apply a little bit of skepticism. In fact, I would tell you that if somebody ever walks up to you, you have to ask yourself a very, very serious question. If strangers approach you in the world today, this is basically what we try to teach our children. You don't know them and they're get, get, getting up in your business. You have to ask on a scale from one to 10, what is the likelihood that this random person is gonna try to murder me before the end of the day, right? That's what you gotta ask, because normal people don't do that. And so it was a very serious question, and you can't get that one wrong. And so as we were talking, my murder radar was blipping off, off the charts. And after a few minutes, uh, we got into the crux of why he sat down. We asked him who he was, and he actually turned out to be a religion philosophy professor at Tulane, which is a major, and a, it's, it's a really well-known school in the city. And this immediately explained not his not his awkward social behaviors, but his acute interest in our conversation. And so once we leveled that out, we began to talk vigorously about all kinds of things. And he had all kinds of questions about our view on sovereignty. But eventually, we saw that his real desire, even though it started academic, this is what, it almost always happens this way, it started with a classroom vibe, it actually ended up on a more personal level, because he began to talk to us about his life and what led him into teaching religion and philosophy. He actually was a professing Christian for the majority of his life. He had earned a degree from a really prestigious seminary, and he thought he was going to serve in the local church. But he had a major faith crisis. He didn't give us all the details about what it was, but he went on to share with us um, some of the academic, some of the, the cognitive reasons he no longer affirmed the Christian faith. He was coming at us with that, that type of Daniel Dennett faith, the mad cow disease stuff I was talking about earlier. And after talking about a few of these things, I just straight up asked him, this is the best way, at least in my opinion, you can take this for what it's worth, this I think is the best way to find out what somebody has faith in. And so when we were talking about faith, 
I said, so you have been a believer. You consider yourself an unbeliever now. I said, what would it take? What, if anything, would it take for you to have faith in Jesus again? And he thought for a moment and he said, uh, Jesus would have to literally show up and make a personal appearance to me. And this is the great claim of a lot of atheists. I've heard Christopher Hitchens, one of my famous, uh, favorite quotes from him, is he says, like, Jesus would have to show up in the living room and tell me he's Jesus, and then I'm not even sure what I would do after that, right? So that statement right there, this idea is the reason I share this faith story with you today, because it's a very common one. It's very likely the face and the circumstance will change in your circle of influence, Maybe you're the person who needs to hear this teaching on faith today. It's not likely going to be this specific set of circumstances or maybe even the particular things I mentioned today. But that's okay because the goal of my teaching today was not to get us to zero in on three things that cause unbelief or a lack of faith. It was to try to get us below that, to get to the roots. The roots are the same in a lack of faith, okay? Or at least a perceived lack of faith. The expression, how that weed grows, is what is often unique to our lives. Somewhat ironically, as this guy was telling us that we were pretty much thoughtless, um, he, I mean, he was respectful and very polite, but what he was saying was, you guys have like hook, line, and sinker bought into this stuff, and it just shows your naivete. And while he's saying this at this point, and we actually did mention this to him, there was a glaring contradiction that surfaced in his thinking, one that is common with people who see Christianity or faith like this. He's saying, you know, your faith is sort of foolish because of this set of expectations you have in it. And the ironic thing about this is that when asked to tell us what his faith was in, he gave us his list. In other words, he basically said, here's the way life should function. Here's the things that matter the most. Here's the things that get me up in the morning. He presented his faith, all of the objects of hope and trust that he looked to in life. And the, the arrogant thing about these types of conversations is that you have an incredible pedigree in history. You might not affirm it, that's okay, but there's an incredible pedigree of Christianity that leads to the very faith we talk about today. It's not the blind leap of ignorance, like we just walked into the theater and then me and some people about 20 minutes before this made up Christianity and threw this out there. You have thousands of years of God working in the world through Israel, Thousands of years of God working in the New Testament world through the church, a pedigree of faith that at the very least merits some investigation before you throw it under the bus and consider it mad cow disease, right? But this faith, and oftentimes this is the case, largely, largely put together through hodgepodges of beliefs and desires. Most people's faiths are made up, simply meaning they develop their own faith based on what they think needs to happen in life and in the world, and then they prescribe legitimacy to it. And so the reason I shared this story and the other two this morning is all of these people have faith. The ironic part about this is that it's a faith in self, and that's where this comes into play, and this is where I leave you this morning. Faith in self is probably, I'm only going to use the word probably because I can't back this with data, but I can tell you through experience just looking at the world we live in today, faith in self is the greatest God that exists in the world today, at least in, in our country. And when I say everybody has faith in something, if your ultimate faith is in yourself, in your ability to determine right and wrong and all the stuff connected to it, then the question becomes, uh, when we speak to people and look at our own lives, not, not do they have faith, the question is, what is the faith in? And the perpetuation of our own narratives of truth in the world today, I believe this, therefore this is right, and all of you around me need to subjugate yourself to it, that's what's going on in our world today. And for me to say, do this, because I think you should do this, 
what happens in that world is I become the object of faith. I'm the guy saying like, hey, this is why you should do this. I'm the absolute reason of, uh, of authority for why you should do what I'm telling you to do or be what I'm telling you to be. And so as we wrap this, I want you to know that the teaching today is not as concerned, although my hope is always this, that you would find faith or grow in your faith today. That's an important thing to do. But I want you, no matter where you're at in this world, in your faith or wherever you're at in your world as you walk out of this room, I want you to ask a bigger question. Don't ask, does a person have faith? Or if you're struggling with something in your life, why do I have an absence of faith? The truth is, is you likely have faith. You just have to ask, what is it, what is it in at that moment? What is the person you're speaking to that claims to be far from God? What is their faith in? Or what is the thing that, you know, I used some obvious examples a few moments ago. If, if your ultimate faith is in financial security, and I'm not against financial security, but when that is removed from your life, the, the faith, the object of trust and hope goes with it. And so at that point, to be wrecked by a rough, you know, a rough quarter of P&Ls in your job or a season of difficulty, what that means is the faith in that moment was actually in the paper bill. It's not in the God behind the paper bill. All of our emotions can almost always be dictated. We can understand who we are in, more deep, in deeper ways by seeing what is it that brings us joy and what robs our joy. Those are great questions, heart diagnostics, that we can begin to use to determine where our faith is. And so as we move to response time, I really want you to ask yourself, what is your faith in? Yourself, maybe it's an item, perhaps it's a lifestyle, maybe it's another person. That's a great way to wreck a relationship, to put the burden of somebody to meet all your needs, to make the ultimate object of trust and hope another person. Maybe it's something else I haven't mentioned. Maybe it's a burgeoning faith in Jesus, or maybe you're in Hebrews territory now. Like you're in that, you're in that category of folks who have walked with Jesus for a long time. No matter where you are, I really want you to think about today, especially as we move into these other weeks, what role does faith play in your life? Ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about faith? And what is it that you will do about it as you leave this place?